Welcome to the Marketing Millennials, the No BS Marketing Podcast. I'm Daniel Murray, and join me for unfiltered conversations with the brains behind marketing's coolest companies. The one request I tell our guests, stories or it didn't happen. Get ready to turn the f*** up. One of the things we were talking about before we actually went live was the idea of loss aversion. This notion that people are actually twice as motivated to avoid the pain of loss as they are to achieve the pleasure of gain. So in marketing, you know, we're all about the gains, the benefits, the advantages, the wonderful things that you'll get if you just click that button, if you just pick up the phone, if you just walk into the store, you know, if you just do what I'm asking you to do. And there's nothing wrong with benefits. I don't want your listeners to walk away saying, oh, Nancy said we don't need benefits. We absolutely want benefits. We know that they work. But a little well-placed loss aversion can go a long way. What do brands like Warby Parker, Dr. Squatch, Vinyl Proteins, and Blendjet all have in common? They're all seeing 20x ROI from retention.com. Visit retention.com to book a demo today. Hey, Nancy. Welcome to the podcast. I'm super excited to have you on. Well, the first question I have for you is, how did you even get into marketing and behave a little Well, that's a great question. But first, let me say thank you for having me, Daniel. I'm super excited to be here and love the opportunity to talk about behavioral science and marketing. So I started out working in marketing and advertising agencies, but eventually I found a book called um, Influence the Psychology of Persuasion by Robert Cialdini. And that was all about the automatic, instinctive, reflexive behaviors that people have. You know, a lot of times in marketing, we think that People make well-thought-out, well-considered decisions, and sometimes they do. I I don't want to say that they never do, but very often people are affected by things they're not aware of. In fact, up to 95% of purchase decision-making takes place in the subconscious mind. So when I started to read about these things, I was like, oh my God, this is so perfect. You know, as, as a marketer, we're trying to get people to make decisions, and behavioral science basically shows us how people make decisions and shows us ways to make it more likely people will make the decisions we want them to make. So it seemed to me to be a marriage in heaven. And so I started to read more and more. I started to test the things that I read. I'd be reading these books like Robert Cialdini's and and others for that matter, Dan Ariely's Predictably Irrational, for example, or uh, Nudge by Sunstein and Thaler. And I'd be underlining things and writing margin notes, thinking about how I could apply this to one of my clients' marketing challenges. And the more I started to use these tactics, the better response we were getting, the greater engagement, the greater you know return on investment. And uh, then, you know, as they say, the rest was history. I just kind of went all in on it and said, uh, this is this is what I'm going to do. This is the, the approach I'm going to bring to my clients. It's this combination of marketing best practices enhanced by behavioral science. So a lot of times marketers think, you know what, I need to get the right message to the right person at the right time. If I do that, I'm golden, right? And that only gets you part of the way there. And that's why marketers should care about behavioral science, because not only do we need to get the right message to the right person at the right time, we need to do it in the right way. And when I say the right way, what I'm referring to is a brain-friendly way, a way that's going to make it more likely that people will notice the message, understand the message, remember the message, and act on the message. Because those are the things that have to happen in order for us to start to get a return on investment of our marketing investment, right? So we want to get that right message to the right person at the right time, but we want to serve it up in a way that is most likely to work with the human brain. And the human brain has certain decision-making shortcuts that it uses, certain defaults that it relies on. And if we as marketers can get ahead of that, if we're aware of what influences human behavior, we're more likely to get the behavior we're looking for. 
Could we dive into some ones that marketers could take away today that if they implemented some of the, let's say, biases that humans have or thought in the human brain that we have, what are some things that we could, as a marketer, I could implement today that would help improve conversion rate or help sell more product? Behavioral scientists have identified, honestly, hundreds of these automatic, instinctive, hardwired behaviors, but some of them influence what people read, who they trust when they buy. And that's where we start to get into the area that's you know so helpful to us as marketers because we need people to trust us. We we you know we need people to read our marketing materials to consume them, and of course we need them to make a purchasing decision. So this you know I, I wrote a book and I list twenty five of them. They're kind of the twenty five go tos that I use. There are a lot more, but those are the ones that seem to be working over and over again for my clients. And so let me just tell you one story that's kind of almost a counterintuitive one, but it illustrates one of the behavioral science principles, how it was used in marketing, and the response that it got. So there's a behavioral science principle called the reciprocity principle. And what behavioral scientists have found is when someone does something for you, you feel kind of indebted. You feel like you want to answer back. You want to even the score. And this is true, you know, whether you've asked for the, the favor or the gift or whether it was just kind of given to you. You know, like if once someone does something for you, you're like, I need to even the score. So Daniel, if you and I were out for drinks after work and you picked up the tab, I'd be like, I got to pick up the next round, you know, or if you sent me a, uh, you know, a birthday card, I'd be like, I remember to send Daniel a birthday card. In fact, there was a researcher from Brigham Young University. His name was Philip Kuntz. And he ran this interesting study where he sent random strangers Christmas cards. And over 20% of the people sent him a Christmas card back. They had no idea who he was, but they got a card from him. And the polite thing to do is to send a card back. So, so that's what the idea of the reciprocity principle is. We, we like to kind of return in kind what someone has done for us. We don't like to feel like we owe someone. So one of my clients was in the financial services industry. And in their particular end of the industry, the way it worked is there would be financial advisors who would sell the funds of various financial services firms. And my client was one of those firms, but you know, one of several. And what had happened was these particular this particular group of financial advisors had somehow, for some reason, stopped selling my client's funds. And my client was trying to re-engage with them. They'd, they'd call, they'd email, you know, they'd try anything they could, but nothing was happening. And this went on for over a year. So at this point, we're left with this group of financial advisors who, for the last year or more, had stopped selling my client's funds. And my client said, we, we really want to you know, re-engage them. Can you help us out? We think we'd like to send them something. So we're like, all right, we can, we can make that happen. Now, at this point, you know, your listeners might say, wait a minute, Nancy, you're going to send something to the people who aren't doing business with the firm, why wouldn't you send something to the people who are doing business with the firm to reinforce the positive behavior? Like, you know, these people have been kind of dead to you for a year. Why, you know, why are you doing this? But we use the reciprocity principle. So we sent out an email and we said, hey, watch your mailbox. There's a gift on its way to you. It's something we've picked out especially for you. And the email was signed by the, the client's wholesaler. So a few days later, this white box appears in the mail and inside the box is a framed New Yorker cartoon. And it's a cartoon that has something to do with, you know, selling financial funds. So it was very spot on for the target market. And in the caption of the cartoon, it included the recipient's name. So the caption would have your name or it would have my name, the recipient's name. So you've got this cool New Yorker cartoon, you know, that's all about the industry that you're working on. It's got your name in the caption. You know, it's like, oh, my God, this is so this is wonderful. And there was a short note from the wholesaler that said, hey, I've been trying to get in touch with you. Would really like to talk to you. You know, please give me a call. Uh, if not, I'll, I'll be reaching out. So 
not only did they reactivate a number of these financial advisors who had stopped working with them for over a year, they actually traced back $68 million in incremental revenue to this particular project, to this particular campaign. So it was a great example of the reciprocity principle. You know, you get this, you didn't ask for it. You'd stop doing business with them. You didn't ask for them to send you this framed cartoon, but you got it. And now it's, it's hanging on your wall in your office or it's sitting on your desk. And you see, you know, you start to think, oh, geez, you know, maybe I should reach out to them. And it's really hard when they call you to say to your administrative assistant, tell them I'm not in the office. You know, you just, you feel bad about it, you know. And then there's the top of mind issue where, you know, you're looking at it and you're like, you know, the next time I call on a client, maybe I'll recommend one of these particular uh, funds, you know. I mean, they, they, they are pretty good. And so it was, it was a great example. So that's, that's the reciprocity principle. And that's, that's just one of, you know, many, many, many behavioral science principles that we can use. But again, it was a little counterintuitive. You would say like, how would, you know, these people who were basically silent for the last 12 months, how would we get them to respond by simply sending them a gift? But what an incredible response that client got. I used to work for this company called Snack Nation and our offer was, when they came to the site, was a free 25 Mac box and obviously that would have been expensive and people have thought about that like sending out a free snack box to everybody you're requesting a demo but actually it was the same thing as a reciprocity now that you're talking about it because we sent them a free snack box and they felt like obligated at least to get on that demo at not because we sent them five free snacks and they request so like we gave them something for free and then they got something back so that's that's so interesting I want to go also into, I'll go into your top fives. One is where's the positive. What are some other biases or things that humans have that we as marketers could use today? There's one called the endowment effect. And the endowment effect is this idea that we value things that we own. So if there's something that we want to acquire, well, you know, obviously we value it. That's why we want to acquire it. But once something becomes ours, or once we think of something as ours, we place even more value on it. So you know, if I was going to sell my house, for example, I'd call up a real estate agent and say, hey, I'm going to put my house on the market. And they'd say, Nancy, that's fabulous. Give me a few minutes. I'm going to run the comps. I'm going to find out what houses in your neighborhood, your square footage, uh, you know, your condition. I'm going to see what they go for. And then I'll, I'll come back to you and I'll say, all right, Nancy, this is what we should put your house on the market for. And I'd be like, that's great. Let's do it. A little while later, the phone would ring. It would be the real estate agent. They'd be like, all right, Nancy, we're going to put your house on the market for X. And I would say, X? That's all? No, no, it should be more. It should be more, you know, because it's my house. I overvalue it. And that's the thing about the endowment effect. We place greater value on things that that are ours. And in in that particular example, I'd be placing more value on my house than the market would be willing to pay for it. But because it was mine, I would overvalue it. So a great marketing example is um, there was this online wine company and they sent me an email and they wanted me to buy a bottle of wine by 1159 tomorrow. But they didn't just say, hey, buy a bottle of wine by 11.59 tomorrow. They said, you have $15 of unused credit in your account that expires at 11.59 tomorrow. And that was just very different. They didn't, you know, they could have said, buy a bottle by 11.59 tomorrow and we'll take $15 off the price or we'll send you a $15 rebate, you know, or, or we'll give you $15 off. But it was, the $15 was already in my account. So it wasn't them giving it to me, it was me already possessing it. And if I didn't use it, I was going to lose it, but it made all the difference. I mean, in, in the scheme of things, it was the same thing. Buy a bottle and they'll take 15 bucks off, or I go and buy a bottle and I apply my $15 credit. The net net was the same, but I was more likely to do it because I thought of the $15 as being mine. It was in my account. 
And that's why the endowment effect can be so strong. So when we have clients, when we're trying to retain them, we want to remind them of everything that they have. If we're trying to to steal somebody away, doing like an acquisition play, you know, they, they might be like, oh, I don't, you know, I, I, I don't want to leave because of, you know, what I have here. And then, you know, of course, we have to convince them that what we're offering could be even better and they should at least give it a try. But when you're dealing with, re, you know, with retention, you just want to hammer home what people have. If you have some kind of a customer tier program, a loyalty program, for example, and there's like the platinum and the silver and the gold, and, you know, it's based on sales, right? And somebody's sales are starting to slip down and they're going to drop from platinum to gold, for example. You know, you might want to tell them about the platinum benefits they're going to lose when they drop down to the gold level. And that could be enough to make them think, oh, no, I better make some more sales because I want to stay in that platinum level and, and keep all of those benefits that are associated with, with platinum. But even if we're just trying to get customers, if we describe things in such a rich way that people begin to imagine what it's like to, to own them or to use them, that can kind of make them start to feel like they already have some ownership in it. And then the idea of not purchasing the product, not following through with the purchase can be like, oh, no, no, that, that's mine. I don't want to lose it. So, so the endowment effect can be very, very powerful. So we have reciprocity. We have the endowment effect. You ready, you ready for a third one? Oh, I'm always ready. I'm, <laughs> I'm, I'm just sitting here taking in all the knowledge. One of the things we were talking about before we actually went live was the idea of loss aversion. This notion that people are actually twice as motivated to avoid the pain of loss as they are to achieve the pleasure of gain. So in marketing, you know, we're all about the gains, the benefits, the advantages, the wonderful things that you'll get if you just click that button, if you just pick up the phone, if you just walk into the store, you know, if you just do what I'm asking you to do. And there's nothing wrong with benefits. I don't want your listeners to walk away saying, oh, Nancy said we don't need benefits. We absolutely want benefits. We know that they work. But a little well-placed loss aversion can go a long way because, you know, people are more motivated to avoid pain. So, you know, maybe instead of saying, take advantage of this offer, we say, don't miss this offer. Uh, maybe instead of saying, you know, buy today and you can save, we say, if you wait till tomorrow, you're going to pay more. You know, it's just a, it, it's a framing issue. It's how we phrase or frame things. But pointing out what you stand to lose can actually be more powerful than than only pointing out what you can gain. You know, I uh, I sometimes say to, to clients of mine, you know, if you were attending a conference in a brand new city and, you know, the conference broke for lunch and, and everyone was told, all right, you've got an hour, go out, you know, buy lunch on your own, be back here in an hour, you know, you've never been to the city before, you have no idea. And someone said to you, I can tell you, you know, the best restaurant to go to around here, or I can tell you the one restaurant you do not want to eat at. You know, what do you want to know? Well, obviously, you'd like to know both if you could, but if you could only choose one, you'd probably say, tell me where I shouldn't go. Like, you don't want to make that mistake. And, and that's kind of at the heart of, of loss aversion. We like to avoid mistakes and missteps. And, um, you know, we, we don't want to kind of screw up the way other people have. We don't want to lose out. So we have uh, reciprocity. We have the endowment effect. We have loss aversion. One that's probably going to be familiar to your listeners could be the idea of social proof. And that's the notion that when people aren't certain of what to do, they look around, they see what other people are doing, and they follow their lead. And that's particularly true if the other people that they're observing are, are similar to them. You know, if you're, you know, if you're an entrepreneur, you look around, you see what other entrepreneurs are doing. What what products are they using? What services are they uh, subscribing to? What what media are they consuming? Because you know you're not sure. There's all this stuff out here. Which way should I go? Which product should I choose? You look to see what people like you are doing, and, and you follow their lead. It, makes you feel like you're not going to make a mistake. You know, it makes you feel like, all right, this must be good. And it also makes you feel like you might miss out if you don't do it. You know, like, oh, if everyone else is doing that, we kind of assume they know something we don't. And if they're all doing it, 
I better do it too, or I'm going to somehow lose out or, or you know, be deficient uh, because I don't have what they have. So social proof can be very powerful. And as marketers, we can, you know, we can trigger it a number of different ways. We can talk about our most popular product or our most popular service, or we could talk about our fastest growing product, or we could talk about the number of uh, customers that we have, or we could use testimonials. Testimonials are a great way to trigger social proof. And, and I'm sure your, your listeners are familiar with testimonials, but there are two things I can tell you that, that will take a good testimonial and take it to a great one. One thing is you want to make sure that the testimonial giver is as similar to the testimonial receiver as possible. That's, you know, that's part of that social proof idea. You know, if I'm talking to young mothers, get a quote from a young mother. If I'm talking to CFOs, get a quote from a CFO. But the other thing is, if you can start at a place of skepticism, which is typically where the reader is going to be, you're much better off because, you know, the prospective client has some questions. Is it as good as the marketer says it is? Is it worth my time and effort to find out? Is it worth the price? Is it any better than my current solution? Is it any better than the competition? These are all the things that are going through someone's head. And if you can have a testimonial that says, um, you know, I used to think that all widgets were the same, but one day I tried this new brand. Oh my gosh, what a difference. Now I would never use another one. You know, when someone reads that, they're like, yeah, I kind of thought all widgets were the same too. You know, what difference does it make who you get it from? But gee, that person thought that. They tried something new and they think it's a superior experience. Maybe that's what I should do. So that's uh, you know, a couple of ways to take a, a testimonial from good to great. If you're going to get a testimonial, an easy way to do it is reframe a question so you can get pull that testimonial out of someone saying to get that. Hey, I used to try those, or like I used to be on this X product, and when I tried this product, I was just blown away. Like you just reframe the question, and also on the social proof, I just wanted to bring up something because I heard that Richard Shotton told a story on a podcast I was listening to the other day about how Red Bull and a club just crushed up a bunch of cans outside the club to make it look like like a bunch of people were jacked up and energized by drinking Red Bull at the club. And it was that was like a perfect example of like social proof of, oh, all these people are drinking Red Bull. They're having fun. Maybe I should get a Red Bull. Something funny happened to me with social proof. I was in Barcelona. I'd never been to Barcelona. And, you know, I, I had posted on social media that I was here, you know, for this conference. And, uh, and someone I knew on social media said, oh, my God, just seeing your post about being in Barcelona takes me back to the last time I was there and this incredible restaurant. I, she's, I'm still just salivating over the, the food at that restaurant. And um, she said, if you get a chance, you know, you should go to it. So I look it up and stroke of luck, it is walking distance from my hotel. So I'm like, I obviously have to go to this restaurant tonight because, you know, my friend on social media said it was so fabulous. And, you know, she's an American. I'm an American. We're both in marketing. You know, it's someone who's similar to me. I mean, I'm, I'm in Barcelona. I don't know a soul. So I'm going to take her advance, uh, her advice. So as I'm walking out of the hotel, the concierge, you know, says, oh, you know, have a nice evening. You know, where are you off to? And I said, ah, you know, um, I'm heading off to this restaurant. It's supposed to be right down the street. I hear it's very good. And the concierge says, oh, that's right next door to this other restaurant, you know. And I thought to myself, that's an odd reply. Like she wasn't saying, oh, fabulous restaurant or, you know, that's great. Have a wonderful time. She's instead mentioning that it's next door to another restaurant. So, of course, it prompted by my question. I was like, well, is the other restaurant better? But, you know, she was very politic, very, you know, very kind of careful about what she said. And she said, well, some people really prefer it because it's it's a little different. It, they put a different spin on their on their tapas, you know. Um, 
And it's like, oh, okay, you know, thanks. Maybe I'll look into it. So now I'm thinking, all right, on the one hand, I've got social proof, my friend from social media. On the other hand, I have kind of like this thing called the authority bias, right? The concierge, it is her job to know. And she's telling me that this restaurant next door is going to be the better one. So I'm like, oh, I don't know, you know? So I'm thinking, well, may- maybe I should check that one out. So I said, I'll, so they're next door to each other. I'll, I'll, when I get there, I'll take a look at them. So I get there, Daniel, and there is this huge line, this like mob scene in front of the restaurant that my friend had recommended. And right next door is this other restaurant and it is so dead there was i think maybe one person inside so i'm like no way like no way no how i am getting in line with all these other people because there's like no one at the other place how good could it be right so i you know i put my name in and and they were blessedly quick and i was able to without too too long of a wait they found me a seat at the bar and had a fabulous meal but then i'm thinking to myself oh man i'm gonna go back to the hotel i'm gonna go through the lobby and the concierge is going to say, so did you go to the restaurant I recommended? Now, I didn't ask for the recommendation. Here's reciprocity, actually. I didn't ask for the recommendation, but she gave it to me, and I was going to feel bad saying I didn't go. So I thought, I'll pop in and I'll have dessert. So I come out in front of the restaurant that the concierge had recommended that had been, you know, dead as dead could be. It's a mob scene, okay? The The timing was just different. It was, like, so crowded. So I, I kind of, like, forced my way in, you know, got up to the hostess desk, and I'm like, hey, you know, do you... Uh, have, you know, a, a table. I, you know, I hear this place is really good. And um, she said, I literally, she says, we're completely full, but I literally just hung up the phone. There was a cancellation. Apparently it was meant to be. And she put me down at the, literally the one empty table at the, uh, at the place. And the food was fabulous. I, I didn't just have dessert. I had like a whole nother meal. It was so good. But but just a, a, an interesting example of social proof. You know, you look around just like those crushed beer cans and you're like, oh my, this must be really good. I see all these people. I'm like, oh, it must be really good. Then I walk out and I see all these people. I'm like, oh, I guess it really is good here too. And so I had two meals and they were both very good. I love it. It reminds me of my brother. It could be a restaurant that a thousand people recommended. It could be going popping off on social media. But if he sees a restaurant that's empty, he will not step in the restaurant. But it's funny because, it, like you said, it could be a timing issue. It could be, but it, it, it could be funny that like, one of the restaurants probably catered to a different crowd or this restaurant or the locals know about this restaurant because the locals eat later the tourists so it's like it can be so many different factors it's it's so interesting that a restaurant could look bad just because there's nobody in it so we went over reciprocity loss aversion endowment and those approved let's get one more for the the listeners to take away today Sure. So there's there's one called autonomy bias, and that speaks to the deep-seated desire that people have to exercise some kind of control over themselves and their environment. To, you know, to, to feel some kind of control or what a um, what a behavioral scientist would call agency. You want some agency. You want some control. Some input. You know, you don't like to be forced to do things, told what you have to do. So what that means to us as marketers is uh, it's very helpful to give people choices. So instead of putting one thing down in front of someone, if you can put two things down in front of someone and say, which of these two do you want? Suddenly people feel like they've got some, some agency, some, some independence, you know, some control, you know, I'll choose one or the other. I've got some choice there. As a matter of fact, there was a study that came out of Tulane University and they found that you can practically quadruple the likelihood that someone will make a buying decision in the moment if you give them a choice, you know, so instead of just putting one thing down, you put a couple of things down. Now, as I say that, you know, your listeners might think, well, oh, great. All right, I'll put 10 things down then. Let's give people lots of choices. But I would caution against that because then 
analysis paralysis or choice overload kicks in. You know, people love the fact that they've got 10 choices, but then they can't decide. And so they keep going around and around and they put off the decision or, or they eventually make a decision, but then they're wondering, oh, did I make the right one? And there's a little bit of buyer's regret. So I always say to my clients, you know, two, three, possibly four or five, I wouldn't go beyond five, but three is like an ideal number. If you can put three things in front of somebody, you can get them to make that, you know, make that decision a lot more quickly. And then there's there's something called the BYAF technique. BYAF stands for, but you are free. And what researchers have found is if you ask someone to do something, but then you remind them, but you're free to choose, but it's up to you, but the choice is yours, it doubles the likelihood that they'll do what we're asking them to do. And that seems a little counterintuitive because as marketers, we're like selling our hearts out. We're asking someone, you know, to, we've laid out our case and then we say, and this is what I want you to do. And then to kind of follow it up with a, but you know, it's up to you, but the choice is yours. But just it reminds people that they're the ones who are in control, that they're not being sold to in a way that's not being pushed into something that they're making the decision and it's just been shown to increase the likelihood to double the likelihood that people will do what we want them to do so anytime we have opportunity to even if we're pitching a client you know maybe we put two different proposals in front of them you can have the the deluxe or you can have the basic you know or two different products that that people can choose from or two different colors or two different flavors but anything that gives people the opportunity to make a choice can really spur the the likelihood for them to make a decision. A long time ago, I was working with um, a creative director and he was trying to craft the opening line to a, a marketing piece where he was trying to get um, businesses to choose a long distance company. And at this particular time, if the business didn't make a choice, uh, the U.S. government was actually going to make the decision for them. It was back when, this is going back a long time ago, but it was when AT&T broke up. But the line he ended up with was, um, if you don't make a decision soon, someone will make one for you. He got like a just under a 40% response rate, which was unheard of at the time. It was so incredible. And I talked to him years later when I realized, gee, he used the autonomy bias. He probably didn't even know that's what it was called, but that's what he used. And I talked to him about it and I said, you know, how did you, how did you arrive at that line, Frank? And he said, I knew I was talking to businesses, but I didn't know what size business or what industry they were in. We didn't have clean data. We just knew that they were businesses. And I thought, what's the one commonality that every business owner would have, you know, regardless of the vertical they're in, regardless of, you know, the size of their business. And it would probably be that, you know, they're in business. They don't like to be told what to do. And he said, that's what led me to that line. And it was like a 38.4% or 38.6% response rate. It was incredible. So it really does speak to this um, this innate need that humans have for, for control, to, to exercise some kind of control. And that's the autonomy bias. I don't know where I heard this, but this, some school campus, like they had a Coke machine and the Coke machine was selling, but it wasn't selling very well. And then they did this by mistake, but they put a Pepsi machine next to it. And then suddenly people would think that like, oh, one of the products sold better, but they actually both the products doubled in sales because now people are making the choice. It's Coke or Pepsi. So now they're deciding between two drinks instead of probably just Coke. So I thought that's so interesting that like you can even introduce like a whole different product. And now it's like a choice between two things. So better for you as a marketer to introduce two of your own products but it's just like a thing where like the choice became between Coke or Pepsi, not Coke or not Coke anymore. It's almost like the idea that you're going to make a choice is a foregone conclusion. It's just a question of which one, you know, whereas if it was just one, it, the question is, do I or do I not want a Coke? 
like you're saying. But when there's Coke or Pepsi, the question goes from essentially, do I or do I not want a soda to do I want a Coke or do I want a Pepsi, which is really interesting, you know, because you still have the opportunity to say, no, I don't want to drink. But because there's two, we just seem to go right to which of the two do I want as opposed to do I really want one? Yeah, because even when I go, like, I'll go up to like a machine and be like, do I want Coke right now or do I not need a drink? But then when it's like harder decision between like two products, it's like, uh, now I have to make a decision if I don't want both of these. So it's kind of also like loss aversion down a, a little too. Like we're like missing out on something. Do I not want one of these good drinks or, or do I not like, there's like three choices. Now it's like introducing like a middle choice to the problem, which is pretty cool. Cause it's have Coke, have Pepsi, or have nothing. Those are three choices you can have. I want to go into one question I like to ask everybody on this podcast is, what is a marketing hill you would die on? So I think the, the marketing hill that I would die on is, it's this idea that some people really think that, you know, they can do focus groups and they can ask customers, you know, for their feedback. And they really believe that they're getting the answer. And I think the hill that I would die on is this idea that people really can't always explain why they do what they do. That very often... Uh, what's driving our behavior is kind of unknown to us. You know, there are factors at play that we're not aware of. They influence our decisions. And when people talk to us about why we did what we did, we give them the answer that we honestly believe, but it may not be the full answer. We may not realize that because there was Coke and Pepsi side by side, we made a choice. You know, we might say, oh, I chose Coke because I like Coke. But had that Pepsi machine not been next to the Coke machine, we might have chosen nothing at all. You know, but we don't realize that about our behavior. It's kind of innate. It's hardwired. It's it's these decision defaults that we use just to conserve mental energy because it's impossible to weigh all these different decisions before making decisions. We never get around to making any of them. So we have these decision defaults. They're hardwired in us. They help us conserve mental energy. But as a result, we're kind of unaware of them. We're very unaware of them, actually. And uh, the net net for marketers is we can't accept everything that our customers and prospects say as as the gospel truth because they're very often you know, other influences at play. I'm going to bring up another thing that I listened to on Richard. I think Richard Child was talking about it, but on the same topic of this is that it was saying that if you ask a customer something or you ask a focus group within the survey, people usually want to give the researcher or the survey their best response to make the survey, like the survey, like proud of them or have a in a native ability to impress the survey person but like people who go into google search or something like that their innate ability is to find the best answer that they try to get but they actually in the right moment to ask the question where like the a survey or they have this like bias machine not trying to have but they're trying to impress the survey so they're giving a half answer or something like that just to impress the survey so i love that insight and i think people should that's why people should find different ways. Like surveys are one good way, but it shouldn't be like the only way that you go talk to customers and also study um, behavioral psychology and go read Nancy's book. And then you'll, you'll learn about this type of stuff, which is super interesting. I want to also give you a couple minutes to talk about where people can find your book or you or follow your journey. Well, thank you, Daniel. Um, so the book is Using Behavioral Science and Marketing. It was published by Kogan Page just recently. And you can get it at the Kogan Page website or Amazon or anywhere where, where good books are sold, independent bookstores, whatever. And then you can find me. You can follow me on Twitter at 
at N Harhut or on LinkedIn or Facebook. And I'm the uh, chief creative officer at HBT Marketing. HBT stands for Human Behavior Triggers. And we specialize in combining marketing best practices with behavioral science to increase the likelihood that our clients get the engagement and response that they're looking for. So you can find me at hbtmarketing.com. Like you heard, she, she's helped many different companies with this. So go check it out if you're looking to make a quick change in your business. Uh, like my, sometimes it's the simplest little change as we, we, we heard in the podcast, but sometimes it, it takes a lot to know because some biases might work for your audience, might not work for your audience, but something you have to learn and seek out an expert or learn yourself. So. Thank you so much for coming on this podcast and I appreciate the insight. No, thank you very much. And, and I'll just close with uh, with building on that last thought that, uh, you know, these are all testable ideas. What works for someone may not work for someone else, but the book is um, filled with very actionable, practical, tactical things to test. Uh, it's, you know, it's called Using Behavioral Science and Marketing, but it's, it's short on the science. Your eyes are not going to glaze over and it's got a lot of just you know, bulleted, actionable takeaways, test this, try this, here's how to try this, here's how to use this, here's how to apply this. So um, it's, it's like a, a hands-on handbook for anyone who's doing marketing or, or anyone who has marketing as one of their many to-dos. So I recommend it for that reason. So Daniel, thank you so much. It's been awesome being on your show. I really appreciate it. Thank you for the invitation. And, you know, I encourage your listeners to get in touch if they have any uh, follow-up questions or they just want to uh, connect. Yeah, and I'll second it. Go read the book. I think one of the hills I will die on is that marketers should learn behavioral science and psychology. It should be like a must-have in every college course. It should be a must-have when you're starting in marketing. It's just, like you said, kind of like a cheat code to know why your customers are doing what they're doing. Thank you for coming on the pop. Thank you. Thanks so much for listening. Tune in next week to hear more great insights from marketing's coolest operators. If you haven't already, please consider subscribing to the Marketing Millennials podcast and giving it a five-star rating. It helps bring more marketers into our community.